Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. What does it take to be saved? Well, that sounds like a simple question. Anyone who knows anything at all about the Scripture knows that the answer to that question is you must trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. The book of Romans, the Gospel of John, make that explicitly clear. But... um, If that's what it takes for people to be saved, then that obviously implies that something else must take place first, namely that they have knowledge of whom they are to believe. So historically, theologians have said that faith presupposes some kind of knowledge. You have to know what to believe before you can exercise faith. But if you kept pushing it back, you would say, that if you have to have knowledge, then you have to have some means to that knowledge. Somebody has to tell you. So you have to have a preacher, someone who comes with the message and tells you what you have to know so that you can believe. But now if we continue this uh, investigation and push it back a notch further, if you have to have somebody tell you, then somebody had to commission that person to go tell you. Someone had to call and commission that person to go tell you. And of course, that someone is ultimately the Lord. So I guess if you analyze this question thoroughly, you would come to the conclusion that what it really takes to be saved is for God to get involved in the process. And um, since man is uh, blind, he would have to open that person's eyes and... uh, Well, all of that, I guess, means that ultimately what it takes for people to be saved is uh, God's elective choice, right? What does it take to be saved? I thought it was simple. All you have to do is believe, and if you push it back far enough, you end up with the whole question of God's election. Now, those two great truths are intention in the Scripture, Uh, How do you resolve it? Just exactly what does it take to be saved? Well, that whole question is examined in depth in the book of Romans. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul deals with what happened to Israel. And in the process, he tells us what it takes to be saved. Now, as we've been going through the book of Romans, we've been looking at this question in our last several studies. But today we're going to look at another passage that really comes down hard on one side of this question. Let's see if we can answer again the question, what does it take for people to be saved? To answer that question, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And look with me at verse 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, 
For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call in him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will anger you by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask me. But to Israel, he said, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is answering the question, what does it take for people to be saved? The first thing he says, very simply, is that in order to be saved, one must hear the message, believe it, and call on the name of the Lord. That's the point he makes in verses 14 to 17. For example, at the end of the last paragraph in verse 13, he says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he says, how then shall they call in him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Now, obviously, there is a progression backwards in that verse. So let's take these one step at a time. Verse 14 says, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Call, that is, to be saved. So the first step is they have to call to be saved. Now, for some of you, what I'm about to say is a bit of a review because you heard me say it before as we've gone through Romans. But let me just remind you that in the book of Romans, there is a difference between justification and salvation. Justification is by faith, and all you must do to be justified is trust Christ. To be justified is to be declared righteous. But in Romans chapter 5, he says that there is something beyond just justification. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved. Verse 9 says it as well, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. So at least in the book of Romans, there is a difference between justification and salvation. Justification is by faith. You simply trust in Jesus Christ and God declares you righteous. Salvation is by, according to Romans chapter 10, 
calling on the name of the Lord. So what Romans 10, 13 is saying is, for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be justified? No. That's by faith, shall be saved meaning that God is going to save me from the power of sin. Salvation in the book of Romans is being delivered from the power of sin. Romans chapter 8 talks about the law of sin and death. Salvation in the book of Romans is being delivered from the law of sin and death. So step one in this process is Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered from the power of sin. But in order for him to do that, that assumes that he has believed. So verse 14 asks, How shall they then call in on him in whom they have not believed? If you have called, or if you're going to call, you must first believe. Now, in my opinion, uh, this verse is talking about uh, two different things. Some come to this passage and want to say that in order to be saved, you must believe and call, meaning in order to get to heaven. I do not think that's what this passage is saying. At the point of faith, you are justified. Calling on the Lord in this passage is what happens after that is you trust the Lord and obey Him and call on Him to deliver you from the power of sin. So verse 14 is saying, in order to call, you must first have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then it says, And how shall they believe in whom, in, in, whom, in him whom they have not heard? If they're going to believe, they, meaning the Jews in this context, must, of course, have heard. That, it seems to me, is self-evident. And he pushes it back a notch further. And he says in verse 14, And how shall they hear without a preacher? If you have to hear... You're going to have to have a messenger. So again, it is self-evident that you've got to have a messenger. And then he asks the ultimate question in verse 15, and how shall they preach unless they be sent? If somebody's going to tell them that somebody had to be sent. And in order to support this contention, he quotes Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So, in the process, somebody must come tell you. And he reaches for this verse in Isaiah 52. And in the context of Isaiah 52, it is talking about a runner who is coming over the mountain. And he has the message of God in his hand. And Isaiah says that runner has beautiful feet. So the one who brings us the message so that we can trust in Christ, so that after that we can call on the Lord, has beautiful, beautiful feet. I don't know what beautiful feet look like. I don't think long-distance runners are normally known for having beautiful feet. But from God's point of view, the one with beautiful feet is the one that brings you the message so that you can believe on the Lord and call upon Him. Reminded of a story about a prince that decided he would marry the girl in the realm that had the most beautiful hands. Now, you know what that did. Every mother in the realm immediately ordered that her daughter couldn't do manual labor so that his, her daughter would have beautiful hands and could marry the prince. Well, there was a girl in the village who 
one day was out in the countryside and she saw several animals caught in a thicket. She knew that if she didn't rescue them, they would die. They were already bleeding and hurt. But she also knew that if she tried to free them, she would get all involved in that thicket and it would scar up her hand. She also knew that if that happened, she would never be chosen to be the prince's bride. And she struggled with the decision and finally she just tore into the bushes and freed the animals. But sure enough, in the process, she managed to scar her hands up. Before they could completely heal, the prince came to her village to examine the hands of all the girls. And when he got to hers, he asked, and how did all of this happen? And she explained. And he said, ah, those are the most beautiful hands. Hands that would be used to rescue an animal are beautiful hands. And as the legend goes, he married her. Who has the most beautiful feet? Those who pamper them and set them on pillows are those who use them to run over rocks to get the message of the gospel to people. Well, Paul pauses at this point and he says, whoever it is that gets the message to the person is the one who has beautiful feet indeed. Well, now, this passage is telling us that uh, if we are to be saved, then we must call, which means we must believe, which means we must hear, which means we must have a preacher, which means he must be sent. Simple enough. Isn't it? I mean, uh, God calls and commissions preachers. They got gorgeous feet. They go give the message. People hear it. They believe it. They are justified at that point. And then they call on the Lord. And as they call on the Lord, they grow and they're saved. <clears throat> right? Real simple. We've laid it all out. If it's as simple as that, what's the problem? Why don't some believe? Well, Paul answers that. He says in verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So that in Verses 14 and 15, he is saying, that in order for people to be saved, they must hear, believe, and call. Then he turns around in verses 16 and 17 and says, but the problem is, not everybody believed. Verse 16 says it very simply. They have not all obeyed the gospel. By the way, let me just pause and say, you have to obey the gospel. Sounds like a strange term because we know that the gospel is Christ died for our sins and arose from the dead, and what we are to do is believe it. How do we get the word obey in here? Well, the Bible says that believe is a command. Paul commanded the Philippian jailer to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible doesn't hesitate to say God commands all men everywhere to repent, that is, change their minds and trust Jesus Christ. So the command to trust Christ is the reason that Paul uses the little phrase here, they didn't all obey the gospel. And again, he quotes Isaiah. For Isaiah says, who has believed our report? 
And that is obviously, as you know, a quotation from Isaiah 53.1. They have not all believed our report. One other little observation that's very important if you're to understand this passage in its context. Throughout these verses, he has used the word they. As I mentioned in passing a moment ago, in this context, they is a reference to the Jews. The problem started back in chapter 9, and we've never really gotten very far from the fact that Paul is dealing with the nation of Israel. In chapter 11, he will come back and speak specifically of the nation of Israel. But at this juncture, he is talking about the Jews when he says they. They have not believed our report. John chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ came and the world did not know he was here. It says he came unto his own and his own received him not. John 1.11. The word received in John 1.11 is the Greek word for welcome. Like if I came to your house and knocked on the door and you came and welcomed me inside. Well, Jesus Christ came to the nation of Israel and they did not welcome him. Or to use Paul's term, they did not obey the gospel. Or to use Isaiah's term, they did not believe our report. So he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Sounds like this is a bit of a formal conclusion, but it really is not. The little term translated so then in the Greek text means this is simply an inference from what he's been saying. And it's the point he wishes to make. He says in verse 17, faith comes by hearing. In other words, you've got to hear. And here comes from the word of God. But the point he's making is this, and this is very important. What does it take for people to be saved? Well, they have to have a messenger. They have to hear. They have to have faith. And they have to call on the Lord, right? The point he's making is the nation of Israel had all of that. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God, and the nation of Israel had the word of God. So what was the problem? They had the messenger, the word of God, and they had the message of the word of God. So what was the problem? And the problem is verse 16, they did not obey our report. They did not believe our report. They did not obey the gospel. Now, this passage, is clearly laying the responsibility for a person to be saved, justified in the process, but saved at the feet of those who hear. What does it take for people to be saved? They must trust Jesus Christ and call on the name of the Lord. Then why don't they get saved? Is it because they are not elect? And the answer of Romans chapter 10 is they chose not to obey the gospel. They did not believe our report. So if you've been studying the book of Romans along as we've been going through these chapters, you need to score, underline, mark well Romans chapter 10, verse 16. It is a critical verse in this whole discussion. The other one I told you to mark that is very important is back in chapter 9 where he says, what shall we say then? 
that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Why didn't they get saved? And the answer in verse 32 is, because they did not seek it by faith. And the last time we were studying Romans and we got to that verse, I told you to underline it. That's Paul's point. What it takes to be saved is faith and to call on the Lord. Then why didn't Israel get saved? Answer, they did not have faith. Romans 9, 32, Romans 10, 16. That is Paul's point. God sent the messengers to Israel. But they did not believe our report. D.L. Moody, in a sermon once said, Some say faith is a gift of God. That is true. But so too is the air and yet you have to breathe it. So is bread, but you have to eat it. So is water, but you have to drink it. Some people sit and wait for a miraculous kind of feeling to come over them, but that is not faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I am not to wait for the faith to come and steal, uh, stealing over me with a strong sensation, but rather I am to take God at his word for that is faith's source, end of quote. Interesting way to put it, but he's put his finger on it. Air's free, but you have to breathe it. Bread's there, but you have to eat it. God has given you the message, and you have to believe it. That's the point he's making in this chapter. What does it take? Well, it takes for you to personally trust Jesus Christ to be justified, and beyond that, to call on him if you are to be saved. Now, at this point in the passage, Paul says one other thing. In verses 18 to 21, he says that all have heard, but not all have believed. He extends this even beyond Israel. Look at verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Is the problem they have not heard? I mean, you've just got done saying, Paul, that uh, what they have to do is hear and believe. Now, you've said they didn't believe. Well, is the problem they have not heard? And Paul says, no, they've heard. And he quotes Psalm 19. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world in the context I would say first and foremost he is saying Israel has heard but he quotes Psalm 19 and the point of Psalm 19 is that the message of God is throughout the whole world because of creation put your finger in Romans chapter 10 and turn with me for just a moment to Psalm 19 the overall thrust of Romans chapter 10, this is a critical, critical point, and I want you to see it. Romans, I'm sorry, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day 
utters the message, the speech of the heavens that declare the glory of God. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice, that is the voice of the heavens, is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The psalmist is arguing in Psalm 19 that every language on the face of the earth knows that there is a God from creation. And in Romans 10, he is using that passage to argue that not only Israel, but all have heard because the sound has gone to all the earth. Romans 10, 18. Their words to the end of the world. So, they have... The problem is not that they haven't heard. They've all heard, and the implication is, and therefore, they were without excuse. Now look at Romans 10, verse 19. He says, But I say, did Israel not know? Now contrast that with verse 18. In verse 18, he says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, he says, they've heard. Well, then is the problem that they heard and didn't know? And he answers that. First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will anger you by a foolish nation. He then quotes Isaiah. Isaiah is very bold and says, I have found by those who do not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. And again, he quotes Isaiah. All day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Now he quotes three passages of Scripture to answer this question. Did Israel know? Did Israel not know the message? And his answer is absolutely they knew. And he quotes Moses once and Isaiah twice to prove it. In the case of Moses, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, where he says, well, I'm going to save the Gentiles just to provoke Israel to jealousy. Therefore, Israel did know. That's the point he's making with that verse. In verse 20, he quotes Isaiah 65, 1. And he says, the Gentiles who weren't seeking me found me. And I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Well, not only did the Israel have the message, the Gentiles had it. And the reason I gave it to them was to force Israel to seek me. So yes, they knew. And finally, he quotes Isaiah 65, 2 in verse 21, where God says, I stretched out my hands. The problem was they were a disobedient and a contrary people. To stretch out the hand is to invite, is to welcome. The question in verse 19 is, did they know? Sure they knew. God's hand was outstretched. He was inviting them. He was calling them. The problem is they were a disobedient and a contrary people. The word disobedient in verse 21 needs to be related to verse 16. They did not obey the gospel. So when he says they were a disobedient people, he means they did not choose to believe. They did not choose to trust the Messiah. So, is the problem they hadn't heard? No, they heard. Is the problem they didn't know? No, they knew. What's the problem? It's 
even when they knew. They chose not to believe. So the conclusion of this passage of Scripture is that in order to be saved, one must hear, believe, and call. Then in that little process, where is the problem? Why aren't all people saved? Answer, they chose not to believe. It's the sum of the last paragraph of Romans chapter 10. Let me use this in the context of our study of Romans, and uh, more particularly in the context of Romans 9 and 10. And one more time before we leave this passage, try to put all of this in focus. What I'm telling you is this. Why aren't people saved? Well, chapter 9 says, God sovereignly elects some people to be saved. Does that mean that some people are not saved because God didn't sovereignly elect them? That's the question Paul brings up at the end of chapter 9. And in chapter 10, he emphatically, dogmatically answers that the reason they are not saved is not because they weren't elect. It's not because they hadn't heard. It's not because they didn't know. It's because they chose not to obey the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. Now let me clarify a couple of things. Basically, this passage is talking about Israel. But by the time he gets to the quotation of Psalm 19, he goes beyond Israel. And he clearly, in these other quotations, brings in the Gentiles. This is then true of all the world. But do you say, there are some people who have not heard, so how can you say the problem is they didn't believe? Well, it is true that there are people who haven't heard the message. But Romans chapter 1 declares them without excuse. Remember that? For the things of God are clearly seen being revealed by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, Romans 1.20. And then he goes on to explain that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, the educated and the so-called heathen alike, all people are without excuse because God has given himself a witness in creation and all men have rejected that revelation. Now there's an assumption that I pointed out in Romans 1 when we were in that chapter that I need to remind you of. I think the assumption of the scripture is that if a person who never had a copy of the Bible looked at creation and concluded that there was a God there and that he wanted to know that God, the assumption is God would reveal himself to that person through his word. John 7, 17 says, He that is willing to do his will shall know the doctrine. If God found somebody who would believe the message of creation, he would send them the message of Christ and they would be saved. So while the primary reference in Romans 10 is to the Jews, it applies to the Gentiles as well. 
And Paul's point is, they did not get saved because they did not believe. And that goes for the Jews as well as for the Gentiles. Once again, one other thing I need to clarify. I think somebody could uh, tune in in the middle of this discussion and say, now wait a minute, haven't you contradicted yourself? Did you not say that in Romans chapter 9 it says that God sovereignly selects some people to be saved? Did I say that? That's right, I said that. And now are you not saying that the reason people don't get saved is because they chose not to believe? Did I say that? Yeah, I said that. Well, then how do you put those two things together? You ready for this? I'm going to give it to you. Here's my answer. I don't know. All I have is a Bible in my hand. And I know that when I read Romans chapter 9, it tells me that God sovereignly elects some to be saved. And that when I read Romans chapter 10, it tells me that the reason they didn't get saved is they didn't believe the gospel. And as far as I'm concerned, both of those things are true, and I don't understand them. Of course, if I could put God inside my head and understand him, he wouldn't be a very big God, would he? So it doesn't surprise me that I don't understand all of spiritual truth. I have argued before that... Um, a lot of spiritual truth is like that. How many gods are there? One. Don't you believe in the Trinity? Aren't there three persons in the Godhead? Explain that to me. Here's my answer. I don't know how to explain that. Oh, I've used all kinds of cute illustrations to try but the simple reality is, I don't understand that. Is Jesus Christ God? How much God? Give me a percent. Is he 50%? 100%. Interesting. Is he man? Give me a percent. You're going to tell me 100%. Now look, folks. 100% and 100% is 200%. Explain that to me. Here's my answer. I can't. Who wrote the book of Romans? The Holy Spirit. I heard two answers. Somebody said Paul and somebody said the Holy Spirit. Which one of those is right? Both of them. Explain that. Here's my answer. I can't. So I firmly believe this book teaches that God sovereignly elects some people to be saved and there is not the slightest doubt in my mind that the reason I'm going to be in heaven is God chose me. And I believed when the Holy Spirit called. Well then, does that mean that people who don't get saved aren't saved because God didn't choose them? No. The reason they didn't get saved is they chose 
Not to believe. You got it. Both those things are true. I cannot explain them. I don't understand them. But for that matter, neither do I understand electricity either. And that's not because I'm uh, dumb when it comes to science and physics. From what I understand, nobody understands electricity. Some argue that the electrons go down the top of the wire, and some argue the electrons go down the middle of the wire, and nobody really knows. Now, just as sure as I make that statement, somebody's going to come up after the service and argue with me, oh, but we know. They go down the middle of the wire. And somebody's going to come up and say, oh, no, we don't. They go down the top of the wire. That's the whole problem, isn't it? One's called the Calvinists, one's called the Arminians. That's our problem. What I can tell you is this. The point Paul makes in Romans chapter 10 is that the reason people are not saved is because they chose not to believe the gospel. They were disobedient to the gospel. That's the answer of this passage of Scripture. Ray Stedman pastor of the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California for many, many, many years, tells a story that is almost unbelievable. But it's true, and it's a perfect illustration of what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture. A man that Ray Stedman knows personally trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He then got so excited he went and told all of his friends the gospel and invited them to be saved. And nobody would listen. He became so frustrated that in order to make his point, he did this. He wrote out a check to his personal friends for one million dollars. They knew, and he knew, he could make the check good. He then went to the friends one at a time. He did this with about a dozen people. And he said, I've known you for a long time. You've been a dear friend to me. I would like to give you this check. In each case, they looked at the amount and they said, Oh, I could never take that. He couldn't give away a million dollars, and it was a bona fide offer. He walked away concluding that man didn't want to have any part of anything unless he could have a part in it. He couldn't give away a million bucks. I've been talking to people about Jesus Christ for 30 years. Better than that now. And one of the things I've discovered is you can't give it away. It constantly blows my mind. Do you understand? I want to give you Heaven, I don't want to give it to you. God wants to give it to you. 
He paid for it. His son died for you. And all you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ. I don't know how many hundreds of times I've said that to a person and they've said thanks, but no thanks. I walked away and at least at that point in their lives, they weren't saved. Why not? Very simple. They chose not to believe. Now, if you've not made this decision, don't make that mistake. You've never trusted Jesus Christ. Do it right now. And God will give you the gift of eternal life, which is a whole lot more valuable than a million dollars. Let's pray. I'm asking to bow your head. Close your eyes. If you trusted Jesus Christ, do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven? If you don't, I'm going to invite you to trust him right now, right where you sit. You simply say, God, I admit that I've sinned. I believe Jesus died for my sin. And I trust Jesus Christ to save me. You don't have to use those words, but you do need to tell God you want to trust Christ. I'm going to ask you one question, and um, I'm going to pray. How many of you would say to me, Pastor, I just did that. I prayed, and I told God I wanted to trust Christ. Slip up your hand. Slip it right back down. Anybody? Slip your hand up. If you would like to talk with me about this, I'd be delighted to talk with you about it. We're going to have some slides in just a second and some pie. And while we're mingling around, if you have questions about this, about anything I've said tonight, come ask me. I'd be delighted to talk with you about it. Father, thank you for giving us your word, for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for this portion of it. Though our Father, we sometimes struggle with this question. Ultimately, none of us understand it. We thank you that you've given us the privilege of knowing your Son and preaching his gospel. We pray that by your grace we would avail ourselves of the opportunities you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.